Hello, and welcome to the Review Squared on Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com. We're live from the Bill Austin Radio Studio in downtown Phoenix inside the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications. All Finally. My... Yes. Amen. Feels Here. nice to be back. <laughs> this is the first time we've had the whole crew in since season one. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. You guys remember season one when we were all like fresh and yes. bright eyed and hopeful? Yeah, you weren't even on the show yet, Kirsten. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. No, it's so awesome. I'm glad to be back. This the review squared is close to my heart. You, I miss you all being all together here. It you know, we've been doing it via Zoom for the past year and a half for the most part, but it's not been the same. <laughs> no, not not at all. <laughs> Okay, so let's get into it real fast. I'm Gideon Karyuki. I'm John Brown. I'm Ethan Pelland. I'm Kirsten Dorman. And I'm Haley Swilov. And have we got a show for you, as always. So to start, I'm going to take you right into the news. So this week, I'm talking about COVID for what might be the 90th time. <laughs> no, that is not an exact number, but I, I'm sure you get the point. While there's a lot to be said about COVID in colleges, and this show does have a college focus at times, today, let's take a look at COVID in local K-12 schools. To start, let's look at the Vail Unified School District in Tucson. This year alone, they faced what the political newsletter Arizona Agenda called, quote, a mini January 6th, end quote, when anti-mask activists were so rowdy at a school board meeting that the meeting was ended, and in the aftermath, these activists quote-unquote, elected a new school board to replace them, with the first item on the agenda being a repeal of the mask mandate the district had at the time. And, of course, this motion passed. To be clear, that is not how any of that works according to the law. Also, last Thursday, Diane Vargo, the principal at Mesquite Elementary School in the same district, called the police after three men came into her office with zip ties and refused to leave, according to K-Gun 9 News. These men streamed this on Instagram and claimed on stream that they were going to make a citizen's arrest of the principal. The background on this story is that there was a positive COVID case at the school. The Pima County Health Department said students exposed had to be quarantined, and one of these students could not attend a field trip. This then mobilized people online, calling this illegal and against parental rights, including the three men, who included Kelly Walker, the owner of Viva Coffee Shop, and a protester against COVID restrictions. Even closer to us uh, in the studio tonight, Chandler Unified School District in the East Valley has been dealing with the fallout of the state law signed by Governor Doug Ducey banning mask mandates. According to ABC News and KJZZ, Multiple school districts across the state are requiring face masks, with many citing the state law banning mask mandates does not come into effect until September 29th anyway. Chandler Unified is not one of them. When they had a vote to reinstate a mask mandate, it failed, with board members citing the loss of funding that could follow because of the announcement by Ducey that all school districts in Arizona, quote, following all state laws and remaining open for in-person learning, end quote, would be eligible for grant funding from the American Rescue Plan funds given to the state government and could receive up to $1,800 per student. 
Lindsay Love, a member of the school board in Chandler, was one of only two votes for the mask mandate. And she told ABC News that a majority of the parents in the district are in favor of masks. And, quote, in our last meeting, it wasn't a lot of Chandler parents. It was a lot of parents from some of the surrounding cities. We have a group that's been going around to all the school board meetings to take over and push out the board. We've had board members receiving death threats. I've received death threats throughout this and harassment. End quote. Love added that the protesters started out protesting to open schools. Then there were some both for and against masks. And now there's even people opposed to quarantining kids who test positive for COVID. A group of parents and others protested against the mask mandate placed by the Scottsdale Unified School District in August after 78 COVID cases were reported, according to AZ Family. For this move, the four board members got recalled petitions filed for them, according to Fox 10. The school board even chose to move their next meeting online in an attempt to keep it from getting rowdy and to keep it from getting off track completely, according to AZ Family once again. With all this pushback against COVID measures in schools from parents, random community members, and even state governments, it is important to maintain some perspective. A poll was conducted by the local consulting firm High Ground to see support for mass mandates. I should note before stating the results that this poll was paid for by the Arizona Public Health Association and the Arizona School Boards Association, who do both advocate for COVID measures. 57% of Arizona voters agree that masks should be worn in schools and in local government places, and 53% agree that those entities should determine their own requirements. And all of this is just, oh my. Uh, I do not have the last paragraph of this, but the conclusion to this is basically it, oh wait, I'm sorry, technical difficulties. Google uh, Docs is weird. It's not Google Docs. I, Pr printing is weird, especially double-sided. Oh, We're even worse, the printer. <laughs> okay, here's the conclusion I wrote earlier, and I'll add to it. This is still a developing story with a lot of potential long-term ramifications, the biggest of which are next year's elections. A lot of school boards do have board elections next year. And people are mobilized. Uh, as you can see from all these stories, uh, the anti-mask minority, as I will refer to them, are mobilized. They are ready to come out and win school board elections, and they potentially could. So what kind of prompted this, before I kind of hand it over to the panel, was I saw an Associated Press article today kind of talking about how school board members are demoralized. So many are resigning at, because... A lot of people, like, this is a volunteer position, basically. You don't get paid to be yeah. on a school board. And a lot of these people are like, I can't do it. This is harass. I'm getting harassed. I'm getting death threats. All for just trying to do what I see as right. So that's kind of what prompted this story today. And I, I'll, I'll leave it to the panel before I give any additional thoughts. So any it's yeah sorry I, I didn't know if i interrupted anyone or not but it's it's crazy it's you mentioned the anti the anti-mask uh minority about the um winning school board elections you have to think they're trying to win governor elections as well um let's take uh former fox 10 news anchor carrie lake for example she's running for governor um she has uh wholeheartedly took on an anti-mask stance and 
even for the COVID-19 vaccine, we have seen her take uh, fight for your rights. Don't take the vaccine. You get to choose. It goes against the whole constitution, your first amendment rights, this, that, you know, we've seen this from her and she's running for governor and we've seen the stances that she's taken. Um, she also held a anti-mask rally at the Tempe campus at ASU last month, where she did confront 12 news reporter Bram Resnick there. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys remember that video, but it was widely on Twitter, on her Twitter. Bram was quote tweeting it and everything. It's just really interesting. And another point I want to add to the Vail Unified School District story about uh, we had on John Carruth, the superintendent of the Unified School District in Vail on Arizona Horizon, and he was just talking about the three men. They came in and they threatened to zip tie the principal. They had a zip tie. It's ridiculous. Like, you know, some of the story, like the COVID stories we see and the death threats these school board members are getting over mass, but to have to go into a principal's office and to threaten to zip tie her because a student had a quarantine over a possible um, exposure to mm -hmm. COVID-19, it just comes out of so many places. And I think making COVID-19 political when it's it should not be political at all. We should leave it to the health officials to tell us our stances on this and not and not our politicians. Why right. are we like it's ridiculous. And and you brought up the First Amendment before and my thought on that that I'll add in really quickly is just that I think it's very silly that these are the same people who try to explain to us as people who have by and large gone to journalism school and taken classes going over painfully in depth, going over what the First Amendment is, what it does and doesn't protect, and how it works. And these are the same people who will, yes, exercise their right to free speech, but then get up in arms when somebody also exercises their right to free speech to tell them that, hey, what you just said was really dumb, and here's why you're wrong. It does go both ways, as fortunate or unfortunate as that can be. And if these people don't like that they're being told, hey, this is what's been working and this is what we need to do, I'm sorry, that just is really unfortunate because if I'm being honest, we're all tired. We're all tired of having to wear masks and be careful and be thinking about this and talking about this as much as we are, but... The people who push back so hard on the simplest precautions are the ones dragging it out. I don't even think that's a hot take anymore, if I'm being yes. honest. It is not. In all honesty, there's this should have ended, or at least should have died down a long time ago now at this point. Mm -hmm. But we've essentially gotten to a point where like, a, a significant majority, a large percentage of the population that can't get vaccinated is vaccinated and is following, mm -hmm. following the rules. But... It's being dragged out by a portion of the population. And so we're just unnecessarily like we're still having like the number of deaths and cases that we were having like over a year ago now. Um, it's not it, it's just it's continuing sort of for no reason. It, and it's like this. I saw the best way I've seen this described was a uh, was a article by Jamal Bowie where he described it as a juvenile uh, sense of liberty. Yeah. Where it's just like this. It's just this continuing thing like Obviously, as Kirsten said, we all are not big fans. I don't think anyone like really necessarily is a big fan of of, of having to do the masks and still having to follow restrictions and things like that. But the, the sort of the thing is, is that 
if, if we all had just, again, if we'd all just tried, at least for a certain portion of time, we wouldn't all have to continue. But because it can, this, 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 this portion continues to, re, continues to obstruct and resist, it's just needlessly continuing. It's really sad, honestly, mm-hmm. because you just see so many people dying that shouldn't be dying. Right. So many people losing family members, losing either through their own choices or through the choices of other people that they're dying and there's no reason to. It's just unnecessary. Like Yeah, and it is childish. I mean, yeah. I double-checked it, but I saw a TikTok where it was this NPR coverage from the first of, of this month of this high school in Tennessee. They also had a similar school board meeting where a student got up and talked about how his grandmother had gotten COVID because of someone not wearing a mask and she had unfortunately died. And he had adults in the audience yeah. heckling him and laughing at him. Yes. It, it goes beyond childish to just straight up horrific. Gideon alluded to, this is happening all over the country. Like, it's not just an Arizona problem. And the fact that we're, like, considering high schoolers and their family safety over something as simple as, like, political mask wearing. Yes, politics are important. Yes, they're involved in everything. But, like, safety should come first. We all yeah. know that. We don't politicize seatbelts. Yeah, especially amongst high schoolers. They're, they're like, let's be real. They're not going to wear masks. Some will. Some will because they, they'll choose to do that. But high schoolers are going to do what's easy. They're not going to wear masks unless it's enforced. Um, I have a little brother in high school in Arizona. Literally every day, my dad gets an email being like, another COVID case in his school district, another COVID case, another COVID case. And it's a mess. It's it's like a terrible mess of COVID hotspotness, which anywhere with a mass amount of people is. So Arizona high schools are massive high schools, especially that's going to be the case. I'm not saying that a mask would solve every problem. But it would help. It would help a bit. And it would probably slow down the spread. And amongst high schoolers, that's something that you want. Again, they're they're not going to go wear a mask by choice. It's probably just not happening. Yeah, uh, 100%. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, so to speak, especially considering we only have so much time on this show. But, you know, everything you said and also applies to universities. Like, uh, I'm glad ASU was able, in the end, to apply a mask mandate we'll probably get to asu and covid at a later time but <laughs> you know we will <laughs> yeah come on it's just the review squared you think we're not going to yeah I, it seems like i am mr covid man now yes, and my entire yes, is COVID on this show uh which i don't want to do please uh, for all that is good and holy i am begging everyone who is listening to this i am begging you please if you can Get vaccinated. Yes. We need to slow this down. This is bad, guys. Wear a Listen mask to get Gideon. vaccinated so Gideon stops having to do this on the show every week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please. We're tired. Please. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And it's not just for us. It's for you, too. Yes. Exactly. Uh, sorry, I'm just selfish. You're good. <laughs> yes, no, no. It's only about us. Do right, it for obviously. us. obviously. For the review squared. We don't really care about your personal safety. No. Do it. For the review squared. Thank you so much, Ethan, for preaching the truth. And because we do not have that much time, I will hand it off to John to continue. Thanks, Gideon. What a good topic for the night that we chose. I seriously love the discussion about this. Moving on, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer criticized the other conservative justices' decision to uphold a Texas law that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. In an interview with NPR, Breyer said this decision was, was, quote, very, very wrong. Supreme Court Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh argued that the law should stay in place as it is being tried in lower courts. 
The Texas Tribune said, in quote, that the, that the law allows private citizens to take legal action against anyone who helps a woman terminate her pregnancy, setting a $10,000 award to be paid by the defendant if the suing party prevails in court, end quote. The law makes no exceptions for incest, rape, and invites private citizens rather than state officials to actually enforce the ban. And over the course of this week and the week before, a bunch of posts on social media has been comparing um, the mask wearing policy to the ban on abortions in pregnancy, where let's say, for example, um, someone says they don't want to wear a mask. They say, my body, my choice. But people are saying, what wh what happens when it's about a female's body and her reproductive rights? That's what we're getting here on social media. And this has caused us a bunch of controversy within the news and on social media. So I know, have you guys seen the social media posts comparing the masks and uh, the abortion bans? I've heard that comparison made, yeah. Yes. And also, another element of this, and I don't know if you were planning to touch on it, that I found really ridiculous, and I had to double check that he actually said this because it really is that outlandish, but uh, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, defended this by saying that Texas will eliminate rape or eliminate all rapists. Oh, yes, he did. Um, yes. To that I say, good luck. Yes. And <laughs> White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki actually touched on that in her press briefing uh, earlier this week. And... She made a really good point. I don't have the direct quote of what she said, but she basically she basically said to uh, to Greg Abbott, she was like, "Good luck," because no other state, no other country has been able to eliminate rapists. And just the fact that he said that is just like it makes you go, "What?" You know, I can't say the expletive I want to say on air, but you know, you know what I'm trying to say, Kirsten. And yeah, it's just. It's ridiculous. And I totally get where the people on social media are making the comparison where people are saying when it comes to enforcing a mask rule Hypocrisy. where it says, I don't want to wear a mask. It's my body, my choice. But what about when it comes to abortions? Then you get to make decisions about other people body, other people's bodies. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, John, I'm just going to be quite honest and state what I'm thinking here uh, bluntly. It's because... At the end of the day, for the people arguing this, it's not about anything but the their power, essentially. Control. It is a yeah, it is um, a power grab. Yeah, for that that specific crap. I'm not saying that all pro-lifers are cynical and whatever. There's plenty of principled pro-lifers out there, but I'm I'm just saying a lot of these this specific crowd we're talking about tonight. This specific aren't. law as well, because it's important to note that it's specified that if any woman has, or sorry, person who can become pregnant has an abortion uh, six weeks and, and over, six weeks yeah, is two weeks after a missed menstrual period. Yeah, you're not going to even know if you're pregnant. Exactly. You, you're that's barely going to find out. You go, oh, hmm, my period is late. And that can happen, as um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez pointed out, that can happen for a variety of reasons as well, not just pregnancy. Yes. And also, like, even if you know and find out within that perfect time frame, now you have essentially two weeks to make probably the most pivotal decision you will ever make in your life. Right. Also, Which... the law also doesn't have an age restriction either. So if you're underage, you also can't. And you could get your family could get sued for it, too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so essentially what Texas is saying is that 
with regards to people under the age of 18 is that they are within the like legal maturity to carry a child to term, but they're not within the legal maturity in order to make their own health decisions. Right, or to right. drive, or yes. to yes. purchase alcohol, or... So, so, and, you know, to kind of say, Ethan, um, I think also, like, even putting aside the specific merits on abortion, let's, the bill structure itself, going, like, empowering private citizens to do a vigilantism, basically. Yes. And... No, that is vigilantism, yeah, having is. private it, it citizens is. enforce what the state should be, you know. It's it was, weaponizing people's yeah. neighbors against one each other, one another. And, you know, we're not in a good place as a country, and we've talked yeah. about this before. Uh, uh, we're, we're not, guys, let's face it. And that is incredibly corrosive. And also the history of vigilantism in this country, guys, yeah. does not end well. Uh, no. Lynching was vi vigilantism. Just remember that. Well, and also, okay, this is also a state which experienced a, mass, a massive power outage that led to the deaths of dozens of people. And, and, like, the state has just done nothing. They've, like, essentially just put it off. I don't mean to get, like, upset, like, but... They, but this is where their efforts are they're, going? They're, they experienced this massive crisis. They've done basically nothing to address it. They've been entirely focused on this sort of stuff. And so, I, what, what even is... Like this law is also specifically was specifically designed in this way with the vigilant with with the using private citizens, so it could be construed in a legalistic way so that the Supreme Court could ignore it. So it's essentially they were just trying to, and just it's such cowardice on all levels in a sense they weren't willing to actually full out do it, and the Supreme Court wasn't like like here's the thing okay so if California decided that it was going to do like a gun restriction, and this gun you know New York. Or California, they're going to do a gun restriction, give out bounties to um, people, if, if in a sense, to say they purchased a handgun. So you find out someone purchased a handgun, then you can get a $10,000 bounty on them. There's no way that this current Supreme Court would not stop that and restrict that law from going into place. You know, Ethan, that brings up a good, you bring up a good point about the Supreme Court, and it brings up the aging question that people have been asking for years now, that there should be a time limit for some for all Supreme Court justices because it is a lifetime appointment and most of the Supreme Court justices have been on there for a very long time, with the exception of Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, obviously, because they were appointed during the uh, Trump administration. But really quickly, what do we think about term limits for uh, Supreme Court justices? It's about time. Anything that reduces the power of a bunch of unelected justices to legislate from the bench is a good thing. I'm pro-empowering Congress to not be a bunch of cowards and actually do stuff. Well, yes. I mean, essentially, the problem—well, uh, everyone it doesn't really want to govern. And so now we're sort of—a lot of governing is now just going to be—is getting done through these legal decisions. But also, then the Supreme Court isn't even willing to make public—like, this decision was, like, done on a secret docket. Like, they, it wasn't even— like, you didn't even, like, see who signed the thing or even what the full, like, explanation of the legal decision was. And so, like, in a sense, you just, well, it's completely, they're, they're completely unaccountable right now. I think regardless of your political persuasion, the, the Supreme Court doesn't really have any accountability measures. And they're just sort of able to legislate from the bench. And I, I don't think, that's not the point. The, the point of the Supreme Court is not to legislate from the bench. The point of the Supreme Court is to be a check on the on the power of the executive branch and Congress, to in a sense to ensure that they're following the Constitution. The point of the Supreme Court is not to 
substitute for Congress because Congress can't pass laws. So the fact that we're in this place sort of shows both how gridlock Congress is and how we've essentially offshored so much legislating to the to the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. This is this will be a developing story for sure um, as time goes forward. Does anyone else have anything to say before we throw it to Ethan for his segment? I think they should just put the panel on the review squared in charge of yes. everything. Yes. Clearly, we have all the answers. We do have all the answers. So. Yes, We're please vote the review five. squared. <laughs> vote the review squared, squared 2022. For the Supreme Ruling Council of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and with that, that is my segment for the night. Ethan, take it away. All right, so who wants to hear me drone on about foreign policy? Everyone? Great. <laughs> In case you guys couldn't see, everybody did raise their hands. <laughs> we, we all did raise our hands in studio. Yes, yes. we did. All right. So this week, I am uh, going to be discussing the Afghanistan withdrawal. No, it's a little late, but the show, uh, we're only doing the show tonight. So this is still, in my opinion, the most pressing sort of story. Although next week, I will be, next week or the week after, I will be covering Ethiopia. So as we all know, the U.S. Uh, has fully withdrawn all of our military forces from the country. Um, this was completed on August 31st. There's actually a, there's a pretty great photo of the last soldier um, leaving on, an air, on a transport plane um, at night. That was on August 31st to meet the deadline on September 1st. So I wanted to sort of look though tonight because in my view, there's been a lot of coverage on sort of the, the lead up to this, the sort of the withdrawal, whether we should have withdrawn that sort of stuff, but I wanted to talk about what has been less discussed is what is what is actually happening in Afghanistan right now. Like, what is the experience of Afghans on the ground? And then I also wanted to go into a very excellent piece, actually by an ASU faculty member, uh, Dr. Nangapal for the New Yorker. Um, so, nearly uh, over the last sort of this last three weeks, there have been about 130,000 Afghans that were evacuated. Um, unfortunately, during the course of this evacuation, there was the terror attack that took place, which did kill 12 U.S. service members, but also 67 uh, Afghan civilians. And sort of the, there, I wanted to note, there's been a lot of bad coverage of this, this terrorist attack. There's, I will say, a lot of people taking advantage right now of people's lack of, lack of knowledge or lack of sort of familiarity with the conflict. Like, obviously, it's understandable. Afghanistan is it's a 20-year-long conflict. It's very hard to understand the full breadth of knowledge, but there are a lot of experts, a lot of people who know what is actually happening on the ground, whether it be if they were directly involved with the former military members or in charge of defense contractors, who are using this sort of, I would say, lack of knowledge or lack of understanding to give very bad faith um, portrayals of this terror attack and other uh, events that have been taking place. So first off, if the, the, the Taliban was not involved in the terror attack, I think it's very clear from both our intelligence sources, but just from common sense, it would not make sense for the for the Taliban to, while they're winning, while they have won the war, while the U.S. is withdrawing its forces, to do the one thing that might actually make the U.S. Uh, either pause or stop the withdrawal. So the terror attack was launched by ISIS uh, Khorasan, which is an offshoot of ISIS. ISIS and the Taliban are in direct conflict in Afghanistan. They are completely separate groups. And so anyone who anyone who goes on and tells you, like even H.R. McMaster, who was her, who was former national security advisor for Trump, they are not working together. 
it would make no sense for the Taliban or honestly ISIS-K to work with one another. They're completely separate groups with completely different visions for Afghanistan. So I just wanted to lay that out because there's a lot of really bad faith takes. Um, now, in terms of what is actually happening in Afghanistan now, so there's a, currently a caretaker government that's transitioning uh, sort of what, we're sort of in this weird period right now because the Taliban, they do have full control, but they're still, in a sense, they're mopping up the sort of remaining resistance. They're having to sort of go through the civil service. Um, and so they're, they're deciding, in a sense, because well, they've overthrown a government. They're having to decide who they want to keep, who they want to remove. Um, so for the most part, what sort of seems to be the case is most of the civil service is actually staying in place. They've actually, Taliban have directly said that they want to keep the civil service in place. But what they are doing is they are um, either re directly removing or killing um, higher up sort of political appointees and members of the previous government. Um, the caretaker government is mostly made up of old guard Taliban members. So the actual, the current like interim head was, I believe, the foreign minister of the Taliban in the 1990s. So it's pretty clear that they're not really changing how they're going to govern necessarily or who they're including. It's, it's still going to be a dominantly one ethnic group, the Pashtun of the South is going to still be the dominant uh, sort of position of power. So they're not really looking right now, it looks like, to include any of the other ethnic groups. Uh, women rights, women's rights. This has been discussed a lot in the media. What the current sort of situation looks like is the Taliban is not making a sort of full commitment one way or the other yet. And this is honestly because, probably likely, the Taliban's waiting. They're, they're not just going to, the second they take power, just start imprisoning women or start putting, preventing them from engaging in all activities because the eyes of the world are still watching. There's still a great amount of media attention being paid. What they have already started to do, though, is they did tell all female um, government employees to not come to work until, quote, uh, it's a suitable work environment for them. They're still letting them go to university but and school. However, most women who were going are not going right now because they're well, they're, they're concerned and worried about whether or not they're going to be singled out in the future. And it's just it's an environment of fear right now. Um, the, what there is, they already are clearly doing is there's there's no room for dissent, though. Mm -hmm. This is sort of the this is sort of the, um, I guess, bargain that the Taliban is always sort of given or made with um, areas of Afghanistan controls, which is in a sense we won't like we won't steal from you we won't um attack you directly like we won't basically like engage in criminal behavior against you as long as you support us as long as you don't resist so anyone who is resisting right now they're being cracked down very heavily on so there's been a lot of reporters that have been uh, either arrested imprisoned or intimidated uh, mostly though domestic afghan reporters um they haven't been less uh they haven't done it to international ones yet um and then there's very uh harsh crackdowns on protests. So any like protests in the urban areas have been cracked down, cracked down on very heavily. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're sort of, as I said, what we're seeing right now is a transition period where the Taliban isn't going to outright go all the way, but because they're waiting. And what that's going to look like is probably better in some ways than the 1990s. The, they might be a little bit more um, a little bit more respecting of women's rights, although only is so unfar as the Taliban ever really could be. And there, may, there likely won't be necessarily as um, violent and brutal as they were during that period. But 
it's not going to be um, it's going to be worse than than the previous government for sure in terms of just general human rights. But I wanted to talk about that in a sense. What was life like under the previous government? There's this this excellent piece. I cannot recommend this piece enough. Um, after you're done listening to the show, or if you have time, uh, I just wanted to point out it's written by an ASU faculty member. Um, it's uh, Dr. Nanga Paul. So the piece is called The Other Afghan Women. And this is a sort of collection of interviews and direct anecdotes of his discussions with Afghan women in rural Afghanistan. Um, sort of examining, he examines and discusses with them sort of what life was like in rural Afghanistan. Because there's just this very clear divide. And there was this very clear divide, which I don't think was discussed enough, immediate coverage between rural Afghanistan and urban Afghanistan. Urban Afghanistan was the sort of was experiencing the best of the of the occupation of the war. There were there was the general improvements on women's rights. There was the sort of the move towards a more cosmopolitan, more um, in a sense what we would think of as Western liberal democracy in the cities. People could you know, freely participate in elections. You could um, you could engage in free commerce. You could go to school. You could go to watch sports. Women could sort of participate in the same activities as men. This was not the case in rural Afghanistan. Rural Afghanistan took the vast majority of the brunt of the conflict, of the hardship, of the deprivation that just, I wanted to point out this quote in the, in the story, which is um, that he's, he's discussing, he says, on average, I found each family lost 10 to 12 civilians in what locals call the American War. And just imagine that. Imagine you as a family losing your family, within your extended family, losing 10 to 12 members. It's something I don't even think I could imagine. And it's this, just so incomprehensible. Yeah. This wasn't, and this of course was not all done by, by, the, by the US or by the Taliban, but this was, this was the reason why so many people died was because they were taking the brunt of the conflict. And in honesty, throughout the story, he sort of portrays the Afghan army was, while the U.S. military has attempted to um, be less, how to put it, be more respecting of human rights, be uh, more protective of civilian lives, the Afghan army was not so much. There were, throughout his story, he describes many reprisal killings, a sort of a practice within a certain, a certain region of Afghanistan uh, where the Afghan army would launch reprisal attacks, reprisal airstrikes on on villages and locations that they lost when they lost under the Taliban. And just in general, a very brutal conflict was taking place in rural Afghanistan. And I think a snapshot into this was the airstrike that uh, took place last week, which is the, the Biden administration, and most of the media initially portrayed this as, a, as an attack on, as a retaliatory attack against ISIS. But it turns out that the only people who died was an aid worker and seven children. And this is still like this was this was initially portrayed as a as a strike on an ISIS member that was but would have been might have been responsible for the attack and yet there's been no evidence provided that there was even any ISIS members even in the vicinity of the airstrike and that it actually in fact the person they thought was an ISIS asset was in fact an aid worker for an international charity. And this has actually come up many times before 
I think probably the thing that people most point to was a was a air, U.S. airstrike in 2017 on a Doctors Without Borders hospital facility. So, I think something that just clearly hasn't been reckoned with is the sort of the damage to the Afghan government's legitimacy from these sort of attacks. And really, who took on the brunt of this was Afghan civilians in the rural regions in Afghanistan. Why we lost legitimacy, why the conflict did not turn out as we'd hoped was because of that. So that's sort of what I wanted to go into to sort of give that insight. Highly recommend that piece by Dr. Gopal. Um, we just wanted to open for the panel. If the panel had any thoughts or any questions, um, sort of I can answer about further like insights you wanted into the sort of this last month. You know, I don't have any questions off the top of my head, Ethan, but I do have to say it is quite what you described that those that airstrike there, that's criminal. Uh, not only criminal in the sense of, you know, it is literally against actual international law that we claim to follow. No, we don't. Um, but criminal in the sense of it is a crime against morality that like that is a thing and i do want to note to everyone listening if you live in the united states or are a citizen which not exclusive but especially if you are a citizen too like this is this is what they're doing in the name of the united states like this is being done in your name and th there's some moral implications to that too but i won't get into the weeds here well, but also, I think that airstrike is a small, it's like it's a smaller snapshot of a larger problem in Afghanistan, which is no one's held accountable for anything. Like that. And I think what you've described is a smaller snapshot of a bigger 20-year-plus-long trend describes so many aspects of what's been going on. And these conversations are so difficult to have, especially on a show like this where we have limited airtime, but not only because of how complex and how deep they go, but because us as people, we've been alive just about as long as this has been unfolding. Now, the Afghan war is about as old as me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I just think there's something so... I don't know the word that I'm looking for, but there's something so difficult to wrap at least my own mind around when it comes to that, where this has been what we as young people have known pretty much all of our lives, us and the people younger than us and the people slightly older than us. This has been something that's been on our minds for so long that really we owe it to the people in Afghanistan to continue paying attention as this story unfolds, I think. All right. With that, just again, read that piece by Dr. Gopal. Definitely recommend it. And with that, I'll hand it off to Kirsten for her story. Awesome. So you can hear me talk some more. <laughs> um, so we're back in the Bill Austin. I'm so excited to be back here and to now share with you all another story. So today I have an update to a case that's been the subject of fascination for a lot of people and one that I also go into detail with on another show that I co-host with a close friend of mine, Sarah Oven. Shout out, Sarah. The show is One Big Foot in Front of the Other, which actually used to be a specialty show here on Blaze and will be returning to the airwaves soon in podcast form. More details to follow on when and where that will be, but we did just finish prepping a script about this case and it's been on my mind. That being said, we have to start in a bit of an odd place to get some context for today's case. And that odd place is creepypasta. 
The word creepypasta comes from the term copypasta, which comes from the term copy and paste. At their core, these are stories that began as things to, well, copy and paste from your inbox, where you might have received a creepy story about the origins of a character like Bloody Mary to send to at least 10 of your contacts, lest whatever featured in the story show up and spook you at the foot of your bed that night. These stories range from really great, engaging works of internet horror to, frankly, senselessly graphic power fantasies written by young teenagers. But in June of 2009, a competition held on the Something Awful forum asked for users to come up with a modern myth to terrify people, and Eric Knudsen stepped up to the challenge under the pseudonym Victor Surge and submitted the first two photos of the looming, faceless figure popular culture now knows as Slenderman. It wasn't intended to be genuinely creepy at first, as it turns out, but it exploded into a phenomena that included written stories, video games, and a YouTube video series called Marble Hornets that expanded its lore and relevance, and if you ever get the chance, watch it, watch it, watch it. I can't recommend it enough. What's important about this and works based on it to our conversation today is that they built up a community of people online that discuss, theorize, and make fan content about these characters. Specifically, a lot of fan content derived from creepypasta stories or characters like the Slenderman tend to mishandle and even romanticize issues like assault, abuse, mental health struggles, and murder. And the heavy sigh is because I've been there and seen a lot of it. Um, it's just crazy. But more likely than not, a lot of this behavior stems from the fact that the community is so largely made up of young people. We're just beginning to grasp ideas like mortality, but aren't old enough yet to really get it. When you take that typical teenage angst and an interest in horror genres, you put the internet in front of those kids and a community that fundamentally lacks the ability or even guidance to properly handle serious issues like this on and offline, and you're not going to get the most ideal outcome, safe to say. Not only do a lot of teens admire characters in these stories who are often murderers, actually, um, but they want to be like them, too. These are guides, or there are guides, rather, on how to become a quote-unquote proxy or even summoning rituals for figures like Slenderman, and they're easily found on platforms notorious for having a lot of children and younger users on them, namely Wattpad and YouTube. With this in mind, let's talk about what's been dubbed the Slenderman stabbing. We'll be going over the, the case's major details, um, but if you'd like to know more, be sure to keep an eye out for that episode of One Big Foot I mentioned earlier. So the story starts out in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is taking place in May of 2014, and I am so sorry if I butchered that. It is not the most easy name to pronounce. Are you talking about um, the town, Kirsten? Yes. It's Wa it's Waukesha. Waukesha. I was close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Midwestern spellings are a little bit of a challenge for my uh, coastal elitism brain. Especially in Wisconsin. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. But so we're here in 2014, and Morgan Geiser, then 12 years old, was allowed to have two close friends sleep over for her birthday. And she invited over Anissa Weyer and Peyton Lutner, who are of the same age, also 12. For the most part, the sleepover went as you would expect. You can probably guess, though, not everything was as it seemed. And as it turned out, Morgan and Anissa had been planning for quite a while to stab Peyton to death for the sake of the Slenderman. 
These are the broad strokes of their motives. While some sources claim that their goal was to become proxies or assistants to the creature and live in the mansion in the woods that is described in so many fan works that it's actually kind of crazy and almost a trope at that point, um, at least one of the girls has also claimed that they were also motivated to kill their friend as a way of protecting their other loved ones. While hanging out the morning after their sleepover, Morgan and Anissa lured Peyton out into the woods at a park before stabbing her 19 times. They left Peyton for dead where she lay to search for that Slenderman mansion and had even packed supplies for the hike there, along with the five-inch blade that police would later find in Anissa's backpack. Peyton had actually managed to crawl out of the woods to where she was spotted by a biker on a path, and they called 911, which ended up saving her life. She was rushed to the hospital and has gone on to survive. Which, hats off to her. That it, it, Hearing and reading the account of what she went through was genuinely harrowing, and even though she did live through that horror, she and her loved ones still live with it daily. And based on expert testimony, the way this folded out in court, a judge found Morgan incompetent and uh, suspended prosecution of first-degree intentional homicide charges against her, and it would later come out that she was diagnosed with early-onset schizophrenia around that same time. It was also ruled that both girls would not qualify for juvenile court and would be charged as adults, and they were later, about a year or so later in 2016. Morgan entered a plea of not guilty by reason of, quote, mental disease, and Anissa pleaded similarly. In 2017, a jury ruled for Anissa to get treatment instead of going to prison, and she pled guilty as charged, but was not held criminally liable. She was sentenced to be committed to the state mental hospital for 25 years, and Morgan was eventually committed to 40 years of treatment and monitoring at a secure mental health institute. Both girls have tried to appeal to being tried as adults and lost, and less than a year ago, Morgan's attorney filed a petition of review in the Supreme Court regarding this, which was denied. However, this March, Anissa filed for conditional release, and it was granted. She will be released this Monday, September 13th, and has more or less said that she hopes she can be forgiven and become a productive member of society. After almost four years, of being held in that mental facility, conditions of Anissa's release will include that she has to live with her father and will remain under constant GPS monitoring unless something bureaucratic, basically, will change. Morgan, as of this time, has not petitioned for any kind of release, and Peyton's family have chosen not to comment. What a case. This is one that I've seen also a lot of bad takes on, and it's genuinely one that still to this day really baffles me. These girls are about 19 now, so they're not that much off in age from the group of us sitting here today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know, John, you mentioned this case is very geographically close to you. It is, yeah. I'm probably about an hour away from where this happened, and I remember this story coming out um, so vividly. And uh, I know Nightline on ABC did a report on this. And just to think about stabbing this girl in the middle of the woods and their friends, just think. You're, think about the setting of going into the woods in the middle. I think that in the middle of the night with... Two of your closest friends. Or that morning, rather. 
Um, was it in the morning? Yeah, it was actually the next morning. So they had slept over. They had hung out pretty much all of that day. And oh, wow. they were like, oh, you know, why don't we play like hide and seek? Yeah, I, I can't remember. I The details of the case are I, I remember I was like Nightline did a really good report on this. And just to think, just to be stabbed so many times by your friends, it is so, I mean. It was traumatic for Peyton. I mean, it, yeah. it was heartbreaking to see. I had watched some coverage of her parents talking about this, and it really affected her. It affected all of the scars from the attack itself and the surgeries that she had to undergo subsequently she had a really hard time with that, especially with things like picking out a prom dress, which just broke my heart. Yeah. And just, I mean, well, the stabbing itself is so devastating. But yeah. to think that two of your friends could do that or just anyone could do that to someone is just absolutely devastating and heartbreaking. Right. And so it's going to be definitely something to keep an eye on, a story to keep an eye on to see whether the family says anything or not. But that's what that's all I have for you this week. Thank you, guys. I think if nobody else has anything to say on this specific subject, I'll pass it right on off to Haley. I'll actually stay on the subject for one second. Uh, yeah, we were 13. I think yeah. Indian was 14. Yeah, I'm one year old. Yep, the anyway. rest of us, I think we were 13. 13, yeah. Uh, yeah, this all, like, I remember all this happening. The YouTube videos were all over the place. There was, like, weird text messages. I'm, like, scared to death of horror just not a horror person. I always it, feel so bad bringing too, these Haley. stories on because no, you're good. This I, you're good. <laughs> I'm definitely the opposite. So yeah, no, but it was everywhere, like unavoidable, um, at the time. Right. And it's crazy that like years later, this is still happening. But that's kind of what we've learned with all your stories. Yeah. Is that like years later, there's still new information coming out. So I guess that's kind of what baffles me the most in this case. And I think it's important to remember, too, that for the people this happens to, they don't get to forget and then be surprised by new information that comes out. They live with this every day. Yeah, for sure. I mean, how could you not like remember that? Obviously, mm. that's a very traumatic thing happening to you. On another hand, we're back. And so is football. The Cardinals start their regular game schedule on Sunday in Tennessee at 12. Fans can watch the game on CBS. J.J. Watt is set for his debut and he'll be looking to help the Cards pick up their first win of the season. The Cardinals are a three-point favorite according to the bookies, but both teams have weapons and are looking to come out of the gates opening strong. Before the Cardinals kick off, though, number 23-ranked ASU faces off against UNLV on Saturday at 7.30 at... Sun Devil Stadium. UNLV is coming off of a loss 35-33 to against Eastern Washington. ASU secured a big win on their opening night, taking down Southern Utah 41-14. Expectations are set high for the Sun Devils as they're a 31.5 favorite over the Rebels. For ASU, the game will be key. They need to run. They run a lot. When ASU runs, when they've rushed for more than 200 yards, they're 9-1. and Fans who aren't as interested in the game can catch some new fashion look for the Sun Devils and look out for some field details that are honoring 9-11 because the game will be played on 9-11. The Sun Devils are debuting two, a new two-toned helmet with a white stripe down the middle, white pitchforks, and on the side and the face masks, you guessed it, also white. The helmet was made to reflect the school's colors as well as the Arizona sunset. The helmet will be paired with a maroon jersey with numbers golden and trimmed in black. 
The jerseys also featuring an Arizona State flag. On the bottom, the Devils will be wearing white pants with white Addy Zero cleats. The helmets are not a one-time stop, though. They will reappear, Jerry Nelly, ASU's Equipment Operations Senior Coordinator, said. The field crew was also hard at work this week. They prepared the stage to honor 9-11. The skylines on the field read, We Remember, and a silhouette of the Twin Towers spans the width of the stadium. Located perfectly in the middle of the field is the numbers 9 and 11, outlined in all black. To see the new uniforms as well as the 9-11 memorial art, you can visit Sun Devil Football on Twitter or simply Google Sun Devils and lots of articles will come up. Lots of different pictures, you'll see what you want. For some of the Sun Devils, this day brings back a lot of memories. Back in 2001, Coach Herm Edwards was still a coach, but he was the head of the New York Jets at that point. Earlier this week, during a presser, he reflected upon what he remembers from the day. Maybe the greatest, was really maybe the greatest thing I've ever done as a coach is uh, we gathered our players together and uh, we got, we got on, we went on buses, it's about four buses and we went down to the site and we loaded uh, trucks that were going in bringing water and supplies to all the first responders. And it was amazing when we showed up as a football team and you looked at that, you looked at the building, it was just down, you know, like, oh. And the people, like, they looked at us, we were first responders and, and just the, the smiles that brought to their face that we come down there. And I said, look, you, you folks are heroes. I said, you, you're truly the hero. Well, Vinny Testaverde was one of our quarterbacks, and there, he, he brought back a brick from the rubble. And when we got back to practicing the next week, after the we, we postponed for a week, he stood up in the meeting and said, Coach, this is a brick of the rubble. We got to dedicate this season to the people that lost their lives. That event, for me, 20 years now, it's vivid. And every time the national anthem is played, I think about it. I can still see what it looked like. The day before the trade centers and the day after, I still have that vivid, that vivid vision of, wow. A win for the Sun Devils would certainly mean a lot to head coach Sherm Edwards and the rest of the Sun Devil community as they look to commemorate 9-11 and move to 2-0. Panel, will any of you be attending the football game? Ooh. I will be, actually. Um, yeah, Haley and I are going with some friends of ours. Uh, yeah, turning into a whole fun evening together. And yes, to not to drown out, you know, like, yeah, it is a commemoration of 9-11. And that is a tragic event that we are hitting the 20th anniversary of now, uh, tomorrow. Yeah. And I, you know, all of us in the studio were very young still. Yeah, yeah, extremely young. We don't have any direct. We are the first, you know, generation in this country that doesn't have any direct me memories of it. And I don't know what to say about it. It's right. all I got, I got to say. Just a darn tragedy. And it's one that I one that we were told a lot as kids and one that, you know, vicar I feel vicariously it's through other people. another one we've lived with. For sure. 
And not to distract from that, but I will say you should definitely also listen to the Blaze Radio coverage of the game tomorrow. We will be broadcasting it. It will be with our wonderful station manager, Gannon Hannibold, and our wonderful news director, Nick Sanchez. So definitely check that out. They went all the way to Vegas to shoot promo um, material for this. The promos so look great. It's yeah. amazing have their hard work pay off. Tune into Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com for that tomorrow. Yeah, and with that, we got to go, but I do there's two things we got to go over before we do. Uh before before I finally hit the uh exit part. Haley, do you want to tell everyone your part? That's oh, right. Sure, yes. Um I will pot be part of the review, but from a distance. Um this semester I will be studying abroad in England. Um, so that will be an exciting adventure, and I'm happy to tell you guys all about it from over there and from when I get back. From across the pond, if you will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we hope to have Haley, uh, because of the time differences, a live segment will not work. But no, we I don't want to be up at like 4 a.m. Yeah, but we do hope to have, you, you, through the season, you might hear little pieces from Haley that are pre-recorded, so. We will miss you. Yes, we yes, will. Yes, we will. You're going to do great in London. Yes. Yeah, Thank it's going to be amazing. Keep an eye out for Haley. She's going to take the world by storm. Exactly. And Ethan, you want to give yours real quick? Oh, <laughs> um, I am moving. Yeah, I'm just I'm going to be doing the show just uh, biweekly. Um, so just focusing on uh, sort of more major stories and a bit more dedicated segments. Um, so I'll be on the show less often, but I'll still be here. Yes, mm -hmm. so the regular panel will be myself, John, and Kirsten this yes. semester um, with Ethan kind of being one of our contributors. You will actually hear from more voices. We are planning to bring on more people onto the show very soon. Oh, for yes. sure. Yes, we'll get back to you on exactly who and when as soon as we know it. Yeah, and apologies for the cackle. I just thought it was so funny that you were like, Ethan, your news. And he was like, my news? Yeah, he was I, a little confused. I had confused. a moment for a second, but then I got there and I was like, oh, <laughs> wow, both you and I don't know what we're doing. Good. Yes. Yeah. But unfortunately, we are actually running over time here, so I'm going to have to do this real quick. Um, thank you for listening to Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com. Please follow us on on Twitter and Instagram, mostly on Twitter. We, the Instagram's kind of dead. We'll, we'll fix it. Yay, Twitter. Um, yes, uh, follow us on Twitter at review underscore squared, at review underscore squared. You can listen to us same time as last semester, 7 p.m. Fridays, live on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. Yes, I'm, we're glad to be back. We're excited. Uh, and also listen to us wherever you get podcasts. If you're listening to us there, thank you. Have a wonderful evening, great week. Uh, don't do anything too stupid, guys. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtime.